This episode is brought to you by Oberly Risk Strategies. Now, some of you likely know Oberly is the insurance brokerage and insurance diligence provider for the search fund community and has been trusted by search investors, lenders, searchers, and CEOs for over a decade now. The company is led by August Felker, himself a two-time successful searcher, both within the funded and self-funded models. He personally runs Oberly's dedicated search fund practice that works with searchers across the entire diligence, purchase, and post-close process. Their due diligence offering, which is 100% free of charge, by the way, will assess the pros and cons of your target company's insurance program and will summarize any potential coverage gaps, the pro forma insurance pricing, and the program structure changes needed for closing. At or shortly after closing, they will then execute on all of those findings on your behalf. In nine out of every 10 client engagements, they're able to either reduce spend or improve coverage, all in such a way that the searcher or CEO can focus on other things while Oberly handles all things insurance for them. Oberly has serviced over 900 customers across a decade of operation and has an NPS score that puts them at the top of their industry. But don't take my word for it. Click on the hyperlink located within the show notes or in today's episode description, and we will gladly put you in touch with as many happy Oberly customers as you'd like. Over the course of many years speaking with current and prospective searchers on a near daily basis, I've come to appreciate that many searchers understandably tend to have very similar questions and areas of uncertainty. Indeed, in most instances, I had these very same questions and areas of uncertainty myself prior to raising my own search fund in 2012. As a result of the frequency with which I'm asked certain questions, I've presented each of them in the audio blog that follows, and I've also included my opinion on what the answers may be. Now, as always, remember that my answers are reflective of just one person's opinion, so they should be interpreted in that context. Nonetheless, below I cover questions spanning the following three categories. One, preparing for the search. Two, the search and acquisition process and three, post-acquisition and early operational considerations. To the extent that you find yourself thinking through any of these questions, I hope something contained below will prove to be helpful for you. Okay, first category is preparing for the search. And the first question that I get asked very frequently is, how should I think about constructing my cap table? Well, cap table construction is one of the most important decisions that any prospective searcher will make. And as a result, I suggest that you act with the thoughtfulness, patience, and diligence required of such a decision. Below are a few of the variables that you may wish to consider in selecting members of your own cap table. First would be diversity. At the risk of stating the obvious, one cannot overstate the importance of diversity among investors. This includes not just visible considerations, things like race, gender, and age, all of which are indeed incredibly important, but also diversity of experience and expertise. This is important not only because of the well-established fact that diverse teams tend to make better decisions than more homogenous ones, but also because as a searcher and CEO, it is a virtual certainty that you will encounter both problems and opportunities spanning all of the functional disciplines within your company, can include sales, marketing, finance, operations, HR, and so on. 
As a result of this, there is considerable value in being supported by investors who can each bring specific expertise to bear in one or more of these disciplines. And be sure not to limit your pursuit of diversity to just demographics and functional areas of expertise. Instead, attempt to include diversity in substantially all of its forms. This could include experienced investors versus experienced operators, those from country A versus country B, growth-oriented investors versus value-oriented investors, and so on. And this will help you extract the maximum possible benefits. Next, don't over-index on a single profile. Closely related to the concept of diversity, I have found that there are diminishing marginal returns to adding a greater number of investors with very similar profiles. So for example, your first sales expert or M&A expert or operations expert or private equity investor is incredibly helpful. Your second expert of the same variety is probably somewhat helpful. And your third expert of the same variety is unlikely to provide much incremental value at all. Remember that different archetypes of investors are likely to provide you with different types of value, and ideally you will build your cap table in such a way that you're able to leverage all such sources of value. For example, large institutional investors can help you with things like training boot camps, in-house fractional recruiters, legal and financial resources to help you with the due diligence process, and so on. Smaller individual investors, on the other hand, are likely to offer you a very different type of help though this particular flavor of it is no less valuable. Most of the time, this type of relationship will be defined by intimacy, availability, capacity, and personalized attention. As best as you can, try to extract all of the different types of value that these different archetypes of investors are able to offer you. Next is availability and bandwidth. Ensure that your investors possess both the willingness and the ability to actually help you when you need it most. When your CFO unexpectedly tenders her resignation on a Friday evening and tells you that she doesn't plan to report into work on Monday morning, you want an investor who's willing to spend their Saturday helping you think through the situation, not somebody who you'll have to wait a week to speak with. Next consideration. In my opinion, the person is often more important than the entity. So what does that mean? Well, naturally, larger investors often choose one of their team members to represent them within the cap tables of their various searchers and portfolio companies. While the reputation of the overall firm is understandably important, it was my experience that the individual representative from that institution was actually a more important consideration than the institution itself, though that is not to diminish the importance of institutional reputation. For example, while you may be very excited at the prospect of having institution XYZ on your cap table, Learning from and working with the founder of that firm is likely a very different proposition than learning from and working with its newly hired senior associate. Beyond considerations related to experience and expertise, it will surprise nobody to hear that a searcher may simply have a better personal chemistry with partner A than with partner B. For these reasons and more, when adding an institutional investor to your cap table, I would weigh the individual more highly than I would the institution. And finally, saving the best for last, the reputation among your fellow searchers and CEOs. Perhaps the most important consideration of all is the investor's reputation among fellow searchers and CEOs. Based on their firsthand real-world experience, do we do what we say we're going to do? Are we genuinely helpful, engaged, and available? Do our stated value propositions ring true, or are they mostly hollow? Remember, what we say during the fundraising process is one thing, but what what we do once we're actually working alongside you is what really matters. Okay, 
Another question that I get asked very frequently is, what, if anything, differentiates the Canadian and U.S. search fund ecosystems? Well, broadly speaking, I would say that the Canadian and U.S. search fund ecosystems are much more similar than they are different. That said, there are a few differentiating factors, which I'll outline below. The first is SBA loans. Many self-funded searchers in the U.S. leverage SBA 7A loans, a program that provides prospective acquirers with 10-year covenant-free debt that can cover up to 90% of the total purchase price. There is a catch, however. That entrepreneur must put up a personal guarantee on the loan, including their homes, cars, and all other personal assets. Unfortunately, the Canadian government does not currently offer a similar program. Next different is the sources of credit more broadly. In the U.S., there tends to be a wide array of lenders interested in financing search fund transactions, ranging from commercial banks to mezzanine funds to private credit funds and everything in between. In Canada, at least at present, credit tends to be largely limited to the large Canadian banks, RBC, Scotiabank, CIBC, RBC, BMO, and National Bank. Note that this doesn't necessarily mean that credit terms are better in the U.S. than in Canada, nor does it necessarily mean that credit is more available in the U.S. relative to Canada. The third major difference concerns formalized ETA education. Within substantially all of the top 20 business school in the USA, search funds are now a formal part of the second year MBA curriculum. As a result, substantially all of these schools also offer ETA clubs, conferences, and other types of educational resources to students. Unfortunately, in Canada, that is not yet the case, and as a result, prospective Canadian searchers are often introduced to the ETA model in contexts outside of their formal education, often through peers in the U.S., through working on lower middle market transactions at some point in their professional lives, and so on. As a result of this, freshly minted MBAs are a less common profile of searcher in Canada relative to the USA, where this is likely the most common profile. Third difference concerns market size. While Canada is the second largest ETA market globally behind only the United States, the absolute size of the market in Canada is still many multiples smaller than that of the United States. The next big difference is legal structures, everybody's favorite topic. In the U.S., most search funds are structured as Delaware LLCs. In Canada, the LLC is not actually a legally recognized entity, and as a result, Canadian search funds tend to be structured as limited partnerships. This tends to happen in one of two ways. First, the Canadian search fund is structured as an LP immediately upon inception. Or second, the Canadian search fund starts as a Delaware LLC, but eventually converts to a limited partnership immediately before consummating the acquisition of a Canadian operating company. I have seen both methods successfully employed in the past, and both methods now have a number of precedent transactions behind them. And the last major difference, at least in my opinion, is asset sales versus share sales. In the United States, asset sales are very common in SMB acquisitions. In Canada, share sales tend to be the dominant structure, so prospective Canadian acquirers should prepare accordingly. One of the primary reasons why this is so is because sellers of Canadian businesses receive much more favorable tax treatment on their exit proceeds under share sales than they do under asset sales. More specifically, they are able to benefit from something called the lifetime capital gains exemption. And what that means is if the company is deemed to be a Canadian controlled private corporation or CCPC for short, this means that the seller is able to collect their first million dollars or so of exit proceeds on a tax-free basis under a share sale, 
whereas that first million dollars of exit proceeds would be fully taxable had the transaction been structured as an asset sale. Okay, on the off chance that you have not yet fallen asleep, let's get to the final question in this category. And this might be the question that I'm asked most frequently. Is the North American market too crowded and too saturated with new search funds? Well, in my opinion, the short answer to this question is a resounding no. Though there has indeed been explosive growth within the search fund ecosystem over the past few years, as measured by search fund formation activity, the number of active investors, the number of transactions being consummated, the amount of capital being deployed, and so on, the number of searchers in the market relative to the number of suitably sized businesses in North America still represents the proverbial drop in the bucket. In any given year, the number of search funds actively pursuing an acquisition is likely measured in the dozens, maybe in the hundreds, whereas the number of small businesses that meet the size criteria of most search funds is likely measured in the hundreds of thousands at a minimum. This episode is brought to you by The Profit Line. Now, hopefully you guys recognize that I'm quite selective about the sponsors that I choose to partner with, but The Profit Line might just be in a league of its own, given that I was a customer of theirs for seven consecutive years while running my own company. The Profit Line is a boutique finance and accounting firm that provides a wide range of accounting services to small and medium-sized businesses, generating anywhere between 5 to $50 million in revenue or so. On a fractional outsource basis, they will do all of your bookkeeping, bank reconciliations, month-end accruals, tax compliance, financial statement preparation, and they'll work hand-in-hand -hand with your auditors, among countless other things. When I purchased my business, I noticed that the books were a total mess. The company's accounting wasn't compliant with GAAP, they were overly complex, and they just didn't work for the company's new reality, which suddenly included auditors, a bank, investors, and a board. Because of this, I brought in the profit line within my first month or so as a CEO. And fast forward to seven years later, they were still there to help us get our books ready for an exit. We used them when we had no finance and accounting department to speak of and continued to work with them even as we grew our finance team to four people, including a CFO. For those of you currently running a business, visit theprofitline.com to learn more about how they may be able to help you. For those of you currently evaluating a target to acquire, the Profit Line also offers a high-level, affordable overview of a target company's current accounting systems, processes, and environment. This analysis can be used in conjunction with your QOV project, or it can be done in advance of it to ensure that there are no large red flags before you start spending the big bucks. Again, that's theprofitline.com. Okay, let's move on to category number two now, which is the search and acquisition process. And one question that I find myself discussing with current searchers quite frequently is this idea of the trade-off between the quality of the business and the price. So summarized, the question is, should I target a great business at a fair price or a fair business at a great price? Said another way, to what extent should I pay attention to purchase price? Now, though different investors are likely to have different opinions on this question, I personally strongly prefer targeting the highest quality business possible, and if necessary, paying a price that reflects the underlying quality of that business, even if that price is higher than the three to five times goal that most search funds start out with. And I say this for a number of different reasons, and they include the following. First, though price is undoubtedly important, it is not the only consideration when making any given purchase decision. For example, how that purchase price is structured can often be just as important. 
two enterprise values under two completely different offer structures may still yield very different outcomes for the buyer. Second, it will surprise nobody to hear that no two businesses are created equally. I really enjoyed a slide deck from Robert Vinal of RV Capital, where he used data to illustrate that buying a business with high operating leverage and high pricing power at a high multiple beats buying a business with no operating leverage and no pricing power at a low multiple virtually every time. The PowerPoint deck is called Mistakes of Omission, and I have linked to it in the written version of this blog post. Third, in my experience, a very low purchase price can sometimes blind searchers, for lack of a better way to put it, and create a situation in which they are willing to accept business and industry problems that they would otherwise not be comfortable accepting. Low quality businesses, even if they are acquired at low multiples, often require a lot of time, energy, and resources across financial, operational, and human capital grounds. This type of work is often very difficult to successfully execute on, especially for a first-time CEO who likely has no experience working in similar contexts. Next, if we reasonably agree that lower quality businesses ought to trade at lower multiples, then it must also be true that higher quality businesses ought to trade at higher multiples. Paying this higher price can be thought of as a necessary tax or cost of admission specific to acquiring a high quality business operating within a high quality industry. A.J. Wasserstein from Yale wrote a wonderfully informative case note exploring entry multiples and the difference between being thoughtfully disciplined versus being unnecessary frugal on price. He titled the case note On the Nature of Entry Multiples, and again, I have linked to that in the written version of this blog post. And finally, in my experience, sellers operating high-quality businesses in high-quality industries don't tend to drastically undervalue their companies as much as some buyers might hope. First, it's not particularly difficult for a seller to do the math required to understand that a four times multiple means that they'd be equally well off if they simply chose to operate the business for another four years. If these sellers are intelligent enough to have built a business that you're willing to bet the next 10 years of your career on, Chances are they're also intelligent enough to situate a four times value into a useful context, despite their lack of experience in investment banking or private equity. Second, most sellers have already been approached by countless potential acquirers over the years, many of whom have already provided them with a range of possible valuations for their companies, and these valuation ranges play a large role in informing the price at which the owner is now willing to sell. All else being equal, it should surprise nobody to hear that a low purchase price can serve as a foundational component to any investment thesis. However, in my opinion, it would be a mistake to blindly decline the opportunity to acquire a fantastic business operating within a fantastic industry simply because the headline price exceeds some targeted range. At the risk of invoking a bit of a cliche, Charlie Munger summed it up best when he said, a great business at a fair price is superior to a fair business at a great price. Okay, the next question that I get asked quite frequently is what differentiates a great searcher from a good searcher? Sometimes this question takes the form of what should I be sure to do in my first three to six months of searching? Well, as you might expect, there is no single recipe for how to successfully conduct an exercise as long, complex, and multivariable as searching for a company to acquire. But that said, below are a few things that I've observed over the years that tend to be predictive of success more often than not. The first is offer frequency, and this is something that I did not do very well when I was a searcher myself. Great searchers issue offers, whether they are IOIs or LOIs, very frequently, and often within the first six months of their search process. 
Savvy acquirers utilize LOIs strategically for purposes well beyond the simple act of papering their desire to purchase a company exactly as outlined in the document. The vast majority of terms contained within an LOI are not legally binding, and as a result, buyers often issue them to get exclusivity, to quickly and efficiently surface the seller's valuation expectations, as well as anchoring those valuation expectations and slowly building switching costs with them over time. Finally, issuing offers frequently provides first-time buyers with much-needed practice, for lack of a better way to put it. After issuing a given offer, you're likely to be asked several questions for which you won't have readily available answers. And as a result, it's best to leverage these as opportunities for you to refine your pitch and positioning over time. Next, great searchers A-B test. So good searchers make educated guesses about what is working and what is not working, whereas great searchers use data to make those decisions for them. For example, when trying to optimize for email open rates, great searchers A-B test two different subject lines over a two-week period and bring forward the option with the higher open rate. So for example, 100 emails would use subject line A and 100 emails would use subject line B. Thereafter, they take that winning subject line and test it against another option during the next two-week period. Iterating through this process over several months in two-week increments is likely to produce sustainably high open rates over time. They will similarly A-B test response rates with different types of content in the body of their emails. They'll use response rates to test the effectiveness of things like in-email videos, buttons to online calendars, or highly tailored content just to see which options work and which ones don't. Third, great searchers leverage their investors. And again, this is something that I did not do particularly well when I was a searcher. Even for those with transaction experience, making the decision of whether or not to spend more time on any given deal is often a very difficult decision to make, especially if you are making it in your sole capacity. Instead of bearing all of this weight yourself, just find a small handful of trusted and engaged investors in your cap table and utilize them to help you make that decision. Instead of spending three weeks with a seller and sending your investors a 20-page introductory memo, instead, just spend two days with the seller and send your investors a two-page memo. By doing this, we can help you think through the merits and risks of the opportunity. We can present you with questions that might not have occurred to you. We can help you focus on what's important versus what can wait until later. And we might be able to share perspectives from similar companies that we may have worked on in the past. So from your perspective as the searcher, this process can help save you valuable time that might otherwise have been spent on a deal that was unlikely to ever close in the first place. Too many searchers mistakenly think that their view on any given opportunity needs to be fully baked before presenting it to investors. As long as you're clear that the spirit of the introductory memo is to collect early questions, look for red flags, and to solicit quick no-go opinions, then your opinions on the deal need not be fully formed yet. And finally, great searchers surface valuation expectations early. In my experience, the number one source of wasted time for searchers is spending too much time with sellers whose valuation expectations are well beyond what they're willing to pay. For this reason, the best searchers surface valuation expectations early as soon as the first call, as uncomfortable as that might sound. These conversations can serve as a very early checkpoint regarding whether the opportunity in question is worth an incremental investment of their time. One way to surface valuation expectations early and in a non-threatening manner might sound something like this. As I've immersed myself in industry XYZ, I've come to appreciate that businesses like yours are trading at roughly four to six times EBITDA. Is that generally consistent with your understanding? Okay, let's move on to another question that I get asked very frequently, which is, 
how should I think about proprietary versus broker deal flow generation? Look, each of these options has its respective pros and cons. And as a result, I think there is room in a search process for both strategies, though I know some investors might disagree with that. A brief summary of my thoughts is presented below. So let's start with proprietary. I like to refer to this as one big pro, but a long list of cons. Now look, I suspect most buyers are hoping to close a deal sourced through proprietary means and for good reason. Ideally, we reach out to a seller directly, we form a close personal relationship with them, and we begin the process of acquiring their company in the absence of competitive bidders. Naturally, as buyers, we hope that the price we pay is ultimately reflective of that lack of competition. And while this scenario does indeed happen, in fact, it describes exactly how I was able to source and acquire my own company in 2014, it's important to at least acknowledge that this benefit comes with some costs. In many instances, these costs are very much worth paying. However, you should at least be aware of what they are, more specifically. First, proprietary deal flow generation is enormously time-consuming, manual, and repetitive. In my case, I reached out to my seller every month for eight months until he finally responded me nine months after I first made contact with him, and this is not atypical. Though better technology stacks and strong intern programs can certainly help ease this burden, it is difficult to entirely escape these realities. Next, it often takes months for direct outreach to begin producing a steady stream of opportunities for buyers to evaluate. This is particularly important to remember during the early days of a search process. Next, it's often difficult to know whether you have a real seller on your hands, and this is one of the most frequent sources of wasted time for searchers. Some sellers were never anything more than tire kickers. Some are looking for a free valuation of their companies. Some are looking for a competitive stocking horse and others may simply appreciate the ego boost. Next, given that in most instances, sellers weren't proactively preparing for a sale in advance of your outreach to them, the state of the information required by any buyer often leaves much to be desired. If the information exists at all, it's often messy, in unusable formats, spread out across countless internal systems, or difficult for the seller to quickly produce. And finally, without the guidance of knowledgeable and experienced advisors, sometimes sellers may have valuation or structural expectations that are far outside of market, significantly decreasing the likelihood of a transaction occurring, though it is Definitely worth mentioning that unsophisticated or inexperienced advisors can sometimes produce this very same outcome. So again, I'm not presenting these costs to you because I think proprietary outreach isn't worth it. I think it is very much worth it. And in most cases, these are prices that we should happily pay as buyers. I'm simply flagging that there's no free lunch and that there is a cost to the pursuit of an off-market deal. Okay, now let's talk about the other op option, which is brokered or intermediated opportunities. And this I refer to as the inverse of proprietary, which is one big con, but a long list of pros. Now, it should surprise nobody to hear that the job of an intermediary is to get the highest possible price for their clients. After all, most brokers are compensated as a percentage of enterprise value. And they often do this by making the process as competitive as it can possibly be. These highly competitive processes often fail to produce entry multiples that are palatable for search funds, especially if the bidding process includes strategic acquirers who have baked potential cost and revenue synergies into their valuations. Among other concerns, these high entry multiples don't adequately account for the first-time CEO mistakes that we should reasonably expect a searcher to make in her first one or two years on the job. With that said, however, broker deal flow does indeed have some redeeming qualities, including the following. 
First of all, it's fast. You can email a broker today and get involved in a deal process tomorrow. This is particularly valuable to remember during the first few months of a search process where the proprietary deal flow engine likely hasn't yet produced a regular stream of opportunities for you to evaluate. Second, broker transactions often provide searchers with a useful source of practice to help them refine their pitch and positioning with sellers during subsequent opportunities. Next, given the fact that the owner has taken the step of hiring a broker or an investment bank, you can be reasonably sure that you do indeed have a real seller on your hands. Next, good brokers usually spend months working with their clients before formally going to market. And as a result, the state of the information required by any buyer is often in considerably better shape. Though again, this is less true for brokers who are inexperienced or less sophisticated. Next, good brokers usually work with their sellers to properly calibrate their expectations on valuation and structure. Given the large amount of time and money that a good broker will spend on any given transaction, they're unlikely to accept an engagement that they view as being unlikely to close due to unreasonably high valuation expectations. Again, another caveat, this is less true for brokers who are inexperienced or less sophisticated. And finally, broker deal flow actually acted as my best source of new industry ideation, which I then pursued within my proprietary outreach efforts. When evaluating any given brokered transaction, even if the company in question wasn't of interest, the broader industry might be. I would often use the information contained within a SIM to directly inform my outreach efforts to other companies operating within that same industry. And in many cases, I had never even heard of that industry prior to reading that SIM. Okay, next question. How do I know when it's time to get on a plane and visit a prospective seller? Well, it can often be difficult to balance the importance of in-person interaction on one hand with the necessity of managing costs on the other hand. For this reason, I would suggest that searchers acquire the following information before spending meaningful amounts of time and money visiting a seller. So there's really two things here. The first is financials. Ideally, you want three years of historical financial statements, but absent that, searchers must at least confirm that the company in question is within the range of their desired revenue and EBITDA targets. Second is valuation expectations. Though there doesn't need to be perfect alignment on valuation expectations between buyer and seller prior to the first meeting, they at least need to be close enough to justify a visit. For example, if you want to pay five times EBITDA, but your seller wants five times revenue, then you can probably comfortably pass on the opportunity to meet them in person. However, if that seller wants, say, six times EBITDA, then I would venture to say that you're close enough to justify a plane ticket. The next question I get asked from prospective searchers quite frequently is the following. I don't have a specific industry thesis, so how much will this hurt my ability to successfully acquire a business? Well, look, the data is reasonably clear. Industry-specific searches tend to result in acquisitions more frequently than industry-agnostic searches. And the reasons why this is so should be relatively intuitive to you. As one learns more about any given industry, the quality of the conversations that they can have with business owners increases. Diligence questions are more specific and more informed. Industry relationships compound. Credibility increases. And sellers get more confidence in the ability of the searcher to actually run their business post-close, to name just a few. With that said, however, many searchers don't really have the luxury of five years of work experience in industry XYZ that serves as a basis for an investment thesis within industry XYZ. This may be due to the fact that most searchers tend to come from generalist backgrounds in consulting or private equity or investment banking, where they likely worked across a wide range of different industries. 
As a result, at least in my experience, the majority of search funds still tend to be reasonably agnostic as it relates to industry, preferring to focus on industry and business model characteristics more so than a specific industry itself. This more agnostic model can and does work, though searchers naturally miss out on some of the very real benefits of focus that I just mentioned. It's probably worth noting here that within almost every PPM that I have ever read, searchers name and describe two to three industries of focus, which represent the industries in which a specific investment thesis has emerged. While this is totally normal and indeed representative of good practice, after all, one does indeed need to start somewhere, it's also worth noting that in probably 90% of cases, searchers tend to acquire outside of these initial two to three industries of interest. And this dynamic can be explained by a wide variety of reasons, some of which include the following. First, maybe the initial investment thesis wasn't particularly strong to begin with. Second, maybe the searcher learned about a new industry, or more likely, they learned about countless new industries throughout the course of a two-year search process, and these new industries proved to be more attractive than the ones that they initially profiled in their PPMs. And sometimes, finally, something within their initial target industries changed and made them less attractive. Maybe it was a regulatory change, a competitive change, fewer businesses for sale than expected, valuations higher than expected, and so on. The next question that I get pretty frequently is, can I have both an industry focus and a geographic focus? Though there are likely exceptions to this, in my experience, it is far too prohibitive to have both an industry preference and a geographic preference. The number of targets operating within industry XYZ in specific geography ABC is likely far too small to provide a searcher with a realistic chance of sourcing and acquiring a great company. If a searcher has to have a focus, I'd strongly advise them to choose only one of these possibilities. Okay, next question. What was the most difficult part of the search process for me? Well, for me, the most difficult part of being a searcher had nothing to do with industry analysis or modeling or deal structuring or anything else that one is likely to learn about in business school. Instead, I found that the most challenging aspect of the search journey was the feeling that I was never really making any notable progress. For lack of a better way to put it, I often felt as if I was kind of floating, neither progressing nor regressing in any meaningful way. Though this may not sound like a particularly large challenge on its surface, it's more difficult than you might think, especially for those of us who, for better or for worse, derive a lot of our satisfaction from the concept of regular achievement. More challenging still was having to sit with this feeling for upwards of two years. In academics, we get grades and eventually progress to more advanced classes. In our professional lives, we get performance reviews, raises, and promotions, all of which serve as tangible examples of progress, momentum, and achievement. I found the search process to be totally bereft of these types of feedback mechanisms, and as a result, it always felt very difficult to know whether all of my efforts were actually leading to anything. To me, the search process felt incredibly binary. Either I would buy a company or I wouldn't. If I was lucky enough to buy one, either I would make money from my investors or I wouldn't. The seemingly binary nature of the path that I had chosen created a very strong fear of failure for me. And what I've come to learn is that fear of failure tends to be most acute for those who have never really failed at anything of consequence in their professional lives. Unfortunately, I can't say that I have any tools or strategies that are likely to combat these feelings. Instead, I hope that listeners who are currently feeling something similar feel slightly less alone and can appreciate that substantially all of their peers are likely feeling something similar. 
The next question that I get, often with a hint of frustration, is why do search fund investors seem to have such similar preferences with respect to industries and business models? Are we all that unoriginal? Well, look, if you have performed any amount of research on the types of businesses and industries that search funds tend to target, you've likely encountered a rather consistent list of characteristics that investors in our ecosystem tend to look for. Some of these characteristics include enduring profitability, recurring revenues, sticky products and services with high customer switching costs, a history of growth, good unit economics, and a lack of exposure to exogenous variables like commodity prices, real estate values, or the state of the overall economy. If your first response to this list is that, hey, every investor across every asset class is likely looking for industries that demonstrate such structurally attractive characteristics, well, you're not wrong. However, the reason why search funds tend to specifically target these types of industries and business models is because, as much as possible, they tend to lend themselves reasonably well to being run by a first-time CEO, a dynamic that is highly specific to the search fund asset class. Though there are plenty of examples of successful companies with project-based revenues and significant commodity price exposure and low percentage but high dollar margins and a non-recurring base of customers between any two given years, these businesses are almost certainly run by seasoned executives, each of whom has likely spent decades refining their craft as leaders and capital allocators. Look, running a business that has highly recurring revenues is just objectively much easier than running one that doesn't. Running a business at break-even or even slightly negative level of profitability is objectively much harder than running one that has some EBITDA to work with. Retaining customers when you're selling them a mission-critical product that represents a small percentage of their operating budget is just much easier than retaining customers who can easily switch vendors if they receive a better price. Growing a business in a growing industry is simply much easier than growing a business in a saturated or declining one. Risk is simply lower in non-cyclical businesses than in cyclical ones, especially given that most companies acquired by a search fund have some degree of leverage in their capital structure. Look, being a first-time CEO, often with no operating or industry-specific experience to speak of, is an incredibly difficult and overwhelming experience. I can say that from my own first-hand experience being one. As a result, search fund investors rightly target industries and business models that provide new CEOs with some built-in protections, such that they can take the time that they need to learn about their company's problems and opportunities before they have to start making definitive decisions. Okay, let's move on to the final category of questions. These are post-acquisition considerations. And a question that I get very frequently is, how might I spend my time during that first week after closing? Well, taking over a business can be very overwhelming, and as a result, it's often difficult to know where to start. To inform how and where you start, I think it's best to start with recognizing a very practical reality. And that is, even if you run the world's greatest due diligence process, chances are high that there is still an overwhelming amount of information that you do not yet know about your company. Most CEOs, including and especially myself, agree that they often learn more about their companies in their first month running it than they did in the six months of due diligence that preceded their purchase. For this reason, I would suggest that you diagnose before you prescribe. That is, take the time to truly understand what the problems and opportunities are in your business before you start making definitive decisions around them. 
One way to do this is to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with every employee during your first week or two on the job. Indeed, this is how I spent my first two weeks as a new CEO, and doing so provided me with a number of benefits. First, it provided me with an opportunity to introduce myself on a much more personal level to each employee. Second, it gave individual employees an opportunity to ask me questions after the initial shock of the company's sale had subsided. And believe me, even if nobody asks any questions at the town hall meeting announcing the ownership change, trust me, everybody has questions and most likely some set of fears that you may be able to quickly allay during these one-on-one -on -one sessions. Third, it provided me with a much more nuanced understanding of the company's problems and opportunities to be acted upon. And interestingly, I came to appreciate that the types of problems and opportunities that you learn once you are within a company are often different from those that you learned about when you were still external to the company. And finally, somewhere within the notes and observations that I collected over those first two weeks on the job was a sort of to-do list that informed my own priority list for my own first one to six months on the job. Now, I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. I'm simply sharing my firsthand experience of what worked for me. Next question that I get quite frequently is, should I create a 100-day plan? Those with transaction experience are likely familiar with the concept of a 100-day plan, a document that governs how the newly installed management team will be spending their time within the first 100 days of operations. Though I do think that 100-day plans can indeed be useful, I say this with a few caveats. On one hand, being thoughtful and deliberate about how and where you spend your time is rarely going to be a bad idea. And in fact, even if you don't execute on the 100-day plan, simply going through the process of creating it is likely to yield several useful insights. On the other hand, however, as Mike Tyson famously said, every boxer has a plan until he gets punched in the face. The reality is that most 100-day plans crafted prior to an acquisition are based on an incomplete understanding of the business, and as a result, blindly executing on such a plan could actually be counterproductive in some instances. For this reason, my opinion is that most 100-day plans are best left at a reasonably general level for first-time CEOs. For example, let's say that your investment thesis revolves around building out an internal sales and marketing function where no similar functions existed prior to the ownership change. In a situation like this, instead of saying, I'm going to hire X new account executives within Y months, I would instead suggest saying something like, within the first 90 days, complete a full diagnosis of the sales and marketing operations and craft a plan of action to be communicated to the board before our first board meeting. Another question that I get is, how should I communicate the change in ownership to external stakeholders, especially customers? Well, there is no universally applicable answer to this question, but a general rule that I believe to be true is that the extent of your communication to external stakeholders should be roughly commensurate with the importance of the stakeholder in question. So for example, let's say that you have a single customer that represents, say, 30% of your revenue. Well, if that's the case, then it's likely in your best interest to get in, this, get in touch with this customer early and intimately, and ideally before the transaction even closes. If, however, let's say you have hundreds of customers and none of them represent more than, say, 5% of sales, well, then you might be able to get away with very light touch communication or perhaps even no communication at all in some circumstances. In my own case, I actually chose to reach out to all of my customers with a stock email about three months after I had already assumed the CEO role. My logic here was that customers would already be in possession of three months worth of tangible proof that their lives would not be adversely impacted under the new ownership group. 
though I agonized over the specific details of the email prior to sending it, you know, when to send it, how much to say, whether to include personal contact information, and so on. To my surprise at the time, I did not get a single response or instance of pushback from any of my customers. What I came to appreciate is that each of my customers were understandably worried about themselves and their own companies. And as long as our ownership group could maintain or improve the service that they were receiving, they didn't particularly care who was writing the checks. In subsequent meetings with my customers throughout my first year, I came to appreciate that customers want to know how the change is likely to impact them. I'll mention that they don't care that your parents were entrepreneurs and they don't care that you left your job at Goldman because it didn't provide you with the sense of ownership that you were seeking. If you're increasing the size of your support team to better serve existing customers, tell them. If you're changing the sales function to ensure more frequent touch points with existing customers, tell them. If you're investing heavily in product to accelerate your product roadmap, tell them. But you may want to keep your grandiose company growth plans to yourself, as it's often not particularly clear how those plans will positively impact their experience as an existing customer. Now, before you take a page from my book and completely ignore your own newly acquired customers for your first three months on the job, I would highly suggest that you consult with your board of directors to seek their guidance as each business and each situation is indeed unique and may necessitate a very different approach.